As Catholics, we know we are never alone. Angels and saints surround us, accompanying us at every turn. Join us today as we explore the friends we have in these heavenly companions with Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of theology at Franciscan University and author of Angels and Saints, A Biblical Guide to Friendship with God's Holy Ones. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today we'll be talking about angels and saints. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And I'm joined here in our studio by our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology. Our guest panelist today, uh, Dr. Michael Cerwilla, Systematic uh, Theology Professor as well here at the University. And Dr. Scott Hahn, uh, who is no stranger both to the, the program as well as to EWTN. Uh, you hold a PhD from Marquette. Uh, you've been teaching here at the University as a theology professor since the 1990. Right. Um, and you are the founder and president of the St. Paul uh, Center for Biblical Theology and New Evangelization. You also hold the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University. Uh, author of Too Many Books to Count, um, and uh, hosts here uh, on the program. And the, uh, the book that many people know are Rome Sweet Home and The Lamb's Supper. And today we're going to be talking about angels and saints. Uh, but you're also a father of six and grandfather of ten. That's correct. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it, thanks for being here. So that, I think that in. takes care of the first, the first segment. segment. That's yeah. right, we're done. <laughs> well, you should have seen the longer intro. We had. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. Uh, all right, so we're talking about angels and saints. How do they fit into what we call the Catholic Church? Well, you know, that's an important question because I think when we say church, everybody assumes that we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Because when you hear church, you tend to think of your local parish, and that's great. Mm -hmm. You might think of the cathedral and the chancery, and I hope that's great yeah. too. Yeah. Or St. Peter's Basilica. But the fact is, the church is a mystery of faith, and it's not reducible to the social empirical realities that are earthly institutions. It certainly encompasses all of those, mm -hmm. but primarily the church is the body of Christ. And insofar as Jesus' body has been raised and deified and it's seated at the right hand of the Father, and insofar as the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit now encompasses all of us as members, as arms and legs and eyes and ears, you can't help but recognize the danger of this reductionist, empiricist notion of church that is just the air we breathe, even mm. as Catholics. Mm. You know, and it's the water you drink. It's sort of the way the world thinks about the church, and it's how the, the world has gotten the church to think about itself. The fact is the primary members of the church are not just the pope and the bishops and the priests, as awesome as they are, but they're members like we are who are sinning against their Savior every day. Mm. And that's tragic. And they right. feel the tragedy just as we do. But the fact is the angels and the saints are not in different church. They are the church in its essence, in her beauty and glory. And when you think of the Blessed Virgin Mary and you think of the 12 apostles and you think of all the others who now behold the face of God, they are not another denomination. <laughs> they are the church in heaven, but it's one and the same church. 
and they're closer to us than we are to them. They're closer to us than we are sometimes to ourselves. And so to recover the, nat- the, the, the mystery of the church is to recover the church in its truth, in its objectivity, its beauty, and its power. And so that's why I wrote the book, because you know? <laughs> I need that. And yeah. I remember, you know, ever since experiencing my first mass and writing a book about that called The Lamb's Supper, just discovering that in the humdrum ordinary basement chapel, I was whisked up to the heavenly Jerusalem where angels and saints were surrounding me, and they had been surrounding Catholics for 2,000 years, whether they knew it or not. Not so only it's are high they, time we know yeah, it. Not only are they part of the church, but they're the church in her final perfected state, and they draw us to that. That's right. And, and the liturgy, as Vatican II makes very clear, is a manifestation of this heavenly eschatological state and glory. Yeah, that yeah, point yeah. I think is really worth yeah. emphasizing because in chapter seven of Lumen Gentium, you have this amazing rediscovery of the eschatological nature of the church. And the fact is that, you know, the church militant or the pilgrim church is inseparably united to the heavenly church as well as the church of the suffering and purgatory. But there really is that that, that intractable draw that their love makes for us. Mm. The the, the question I have, uh, Scott, is if every time you make a discovery, you write a book. (laughs) How many more discoveries are you likely to make? We're running short on paper. The forest is fast receding. And and so so is my age. (laughs) The the point I would make is that what you see is not what you get when you look at the face of the church. What you don't see is really what you get. Uh, The church is much larger than we might imagine. You can't inventory the parts. And when you consider most of the members of the church are dead, that, that I think, infinitely expands one's horizon. And especially when you recognize that all of those who are dead are really more alive than we right, are. Right, yeah. and, and And more in love than anybody on earth could ever be. And that nobody's a saint on earth until they've drawn their last breath. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just because you could always slip back into sin, it's because death itself transubstantiates a sinner into a saint in a final dramatic way. Yeah. Wow. So we end up in the heavenly courts, at least that's our hope, that's our goal, yeah, our aspiration. Our, the only reason we were made. <laughs> and, 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 but you said something about that, they are closer to us than we are to them. What did, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, one of my favorite pictures in scripture is the one that we find in Hebrews 12, right after the famous faith chapter in Hebrews 11, where the author enumerates all of the saints beginning with Abel and going through Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Joshua and the judges and the, and the kings and the prophets who suffered. And you know, it's, it's a beautiful chapter that shows us that we share the same faith as they do. But at the, it, at the conclusion of chapter 11, it describes how they did not obtain the inheritance, that they're not going to get it apart from us. But now that Jesus has died and risen, they have entered into an inheritance that they share with us. And so Hebrews 12 begins by describing, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Mm. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about all of the faithful who have been taken up as Jesus led captivity captive, as we read in Ephesians 4, he has released all of the souls of the faithful departed who were waiting seemingly forever for the Messiah's coming. And now they are alongside of the angels up in heaven. And, and I think 
that when we recognize that they're a cloud of witnesses, we can see that they're not spectators. Mm. They're not just kind of watching and judging and nah. They're like a on. Greek arena here looking down. Right, <laughs> they're witnesses and the like, terminology yeah. that is used there is that they're invested in bearing testimony on our behalf as well as to show that Christ is the faithful witness. Mm. And so just as in a family, the older siblings are so often plugged into the parents' values and concerns. And they can see younger siblings are just kind of, you know, absorbed in themselves. And so they collaborate with the parents, at least sometimes in my <laughs> family, not always, not often. But uh, the saints always do that. Their love is perfected, so they don't forget about us. They intercede for us in a way that we could never intercede for right, each other. Right. Hmm. They have a mission. Therese, uh, of Lisieux's mission was right. to evangelize, and she does so much better in yeah, heaven. God has kept her much respect. busier uh, in beatitude That's than right. she ever was. It's as rest, a humble little Carmela. It's rest, but right. not right. without activity. It's so yeah. ironic yeah. that Saint Therese, who never left the convent and who right. died before she was a quarter of a century, ends up being the patron of world missions. She, she, yeah. she has this <laughs> elasticity. That is a source, I think, of great comfort to know that we're not alone. But we have to disabuse, particularly young people, of the notion that they are alone. Right. What, what Michael Oakeshott calls the sweet solipsism of the young. The, the, this myth that somehow the universe is an extension of my, my ego, my appetite. We have to somehow shatter that myth and persuade them that when they admit this larger reality, let it impinge upon their own horizons, their world, their sensibility is infinitely extended, infinitely enriched. That's right. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I come from a family of eight, uh, and four of the members of that family are dead. But as you remarked earlier, they are more intensely alive now yeah. than they ever were in the flesh. That's a source of great comfort, to know that I'm not alone. Yeah. 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 This kinship bond that unites us is not part of the narrative of the postmodern world. You know, and you can trace it back to the Enlightenment, where the Cartesian quest for individual certitude ends up sort of isolating all of us. And then when we move from the, mod, you know, the modern time to the postmodern, you know, it isn't really a rejection of modernity. It's a kind of, it's, it's like modernism on steroids. You know, where, where individuals now reject any other story that you would impose upon me. There is no meta-narrative, as right, Leotard right, would say, yeah. that, you know, you've got to concoct your own tale. You've got to determine yourself. And I mean, this celebration of diversity is really a celebration of a sort of adolescent mindset where me, myself, and I represent the world. Right, right. And the saints and the angels are looking down with a pity, but with a powerful intercessory capacity, like, you know, help us, Father, get them out of themselves before they shrink into nothingness. Yeah. You know? I think that's at, that's at the essence of what it is Catholic. It's family. It's being yeah. a part of something bigger. It's not, you, you aren't saved by yourself. You're saved in bunches. You're saved in a family. You're saved as part of this worldwide and heavenly family. I mean, that's, that's, right. a, that's a profound saint, insight. No doubt. The, the, the saints are, are counter witnesses to this nihilistic isolation and solipsistic self-turning. Um, but how do we assist this generation to see that. In part, Regis, earlier you said, uh, what you see is not what you get, it's more than what you right. see. And at the same time, mm. 
it's sac the church on earth is sacramental. So right. it has to be seen, heard, right. read about, well, you know, and, and, and the well, liturgy I mean, what, what you tangibly see encountered. signifies so much more than what you're able to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Eucharist, uh, what yeah. you see is bread and not a particularly appetizing uh, 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 loaf. <laughs> but it invites sure, meditation. But I'm thinking of sacred art that yeah. gives a tangible sure. stained glass windows, paintings, Icons. murals, statuary. Yeah all of which should give a degree of, and we've had a dearth of that, but there's a renewal and revival of that. Yeah. Along, so along with the art also right. teaching, like uh, your book, for I example, agree wholeheartedly. I do believe that this movement from below has got to take people up into the heavenly realities that are pervasive, whether we see them or not. And we don't see them. That's the reason why that movement is so necessary. But I would say equally necessary, and maybe more so, is that movement from, from above, where the angels and saints make themselves know apart, known, apart from didactic, uh, you know, apart from icons, apart from books like mine. You know, I begin the book by describing an experience that I had, not teaching about it, and not even just sort of passively witnessing the liturgy for the first time. You know, three weeks before we went to Italy, you know, our, our, our six-year-old son almost died from, well, he got an emergency appendectomy, so it saved his life. And then three weeks later, we were going to Italy for this pilgrimage with almost 200 people, and I was called upon to lead, along with my family. You know, within less than three days, we land, and the doctor had given him the green light. He can go. He's recovered, you know. The first day was okay. The second day was bad. The third day was just scary. I would never seen our son Joe writhing in pain. He couldn't even stand and walk, and he was, he was tough as nails. So I rushed him to the hospital in Assisi, which at the time was a very modest institution, and scary to imagine surgery happening there. And you know, the doctor said, it's okay, it's on this side, but if it changes to that side, you really have trouble. Well, later on after dinner, for three hours he was writhing, worse than before. I'm like, is it still on this side? No, Dad, he, it's changed to that side, and he hadn't heard what the doctor had said. He had no idea what that meant, so I got the word out, and those three hours were, you know, were just like hmm. indescribably frightening for me as a father who felt so helpless. And then around midnight, I just realized I am helpless, and I embraced it. I dropped to my knees while he was moaning and groaning and trying to find, you know, find sleep, and I just started crying. I'm like, Lord, are you here? And it's like, you know, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, what am I afraid of? And I just, I'm afraid of losing my son. I'm afraid of my, my, my wife just dying of grief. And I just ticked off a list, and then, you know, a moment later, he said, are, is that all? And I, no, no, there are other fears, and is that all? And about 20 minutes later, I realized I hadn't let God in on any secrets. Mm -hmm. He was showing me how wrapped up in fears I am. Mm. And at that moment I began to realize my, my blessed mother, you know, Jesus' mother was there, and my guard, and then all of a sudden nobody flipped on the switch, but if they had, I think I would have seen the face of dozens of these angels and saints yeah. for the next three hours until 3 a.m. I was taken up into this communion. That's what made it clear to me that they are here to help us in our hour of need. It's a wonderful doctrine to renew but it is an absolutely important experience to discover and rediscover. Right. Our lives depend upon it eternally. I didn't mean to go on so long, yeah, but yeah. that was decisive breakthrough for me. Well, and it's a personal encounter, and I think yeah. that's, that's really at, at the key of both our Christian life as well as with the angels and saints, that the, these are persons, these are yeah. heavenly persons that we are called to be in communion with. Well, I mean, that was a pretty dramatic moment of grace uh, you had. It became almost palpable uh, for you in that room. Yeah, I mean, the long and short of it is by 3 a.m. I prayed a 
a rosary, I, I went to sleep and in the morning there was no pain. There ended up being a bunch of tests but no surgery. And the doctor was a skeptic, an agnostic, but he said when you practice medicine in the CC, this yes. is what you get. <laughs> it was a minor miracle and he got to meet the future saint, John Paul II, later on that week. Oh, uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. Saints, um, initially what comes to my mind is they are like us. Like that's the biggest role I think they have is that we can relate to them. We see them that they're not always perfect. Um, we see their faults, their struggles, their weaknesses, but we see their victories. They're people, they're regular people, so they give us an example of how to live out the gospel you know, in ever, everyday lives. And a lot of them you can relate to, um, especially you know, if uh, Jesus seems kind of far off. As Catholics, we believe that in heaven you can intercess for people on earth. And so we pray to the saints and we look to them as examples. And something that's really cool about our faith is even if you didn't know like a saint on earth, you can get to know them through their writings and through praying to them because prayer is just a conversation. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about angels and saints with author, preacher, teacher, <laughs> Dr. Scott Hahn. All right, so a subject that you're really not very familiar with, but could you unpack what the saints, uh, from a scriptural and biblical standpoint, I know this is putting you out of your comfort zone All a little right. bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think sometimes we don't notice what we don't notice. You know, yeah, that's yeah, the nature yeah. of the beast. You know, when we approach scripture, we don't always notice that the New Testament introduces things that now we take for granted, mm. that weren't there in the old. So when you go back to Genesis, you probably assume that holiness and the call to sanctity, which is sort of like, you know, everything, right. is there everywhere, and it's nowhere. You know, I, I didn't notice this until I went back looking for it, that the word holiness only occurs once in all 50 chapters of Genesis. Mm. It's when God consecrates the seventh day. So it becomes the wellspring of holiness and a call to sanctity as well. In Exodus, there of course, when you're setting apart Israel from Egypt and drawing them out of idolatry, there is a call to holiness. But as you go from Exodus into Leviticus, which has the holiness code and everything else, what's also startling, at least it was for me, was to discover what Rabbi Joshua Berman points out, that nowhere in the five books of Moses, nowhere in the law or the prophets or the writings, is anybody ever called a saint? Wow. You alone are holy is a frequent you know, refrain. And the tabernacle is holy, the Ark of the Covenant is holy, the priestly vestments are holy, the sacrificial victims are holy. All of these things that are Kodesh are set apart. And when you're translating that into the Greek, the, the, the notion of hagiadzo, you know, it, it's set apart, it's being sanctified, but nobody's called a saint. You know, in 2 Kings, a woman refers to Elisha, the prophet, as a saint, but that's, that's hardly a divine commendation. It's just a woman's perception. The, the sole exception that kind of proves the rule, I found, 
is uh, in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man overcomes these four hideous beasts that represent four Gentile empires and is presented to the Ancient of Days riding on the clouds of heaven. And he's given this everlasting kingdom that all nations should, should, should serve him. And of course, we know this is a prophecy of Jesus because Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and nobody else does. And he calls himself that more than all the other titles put together. But what's What's so conspicuous and yet again frequently overlooked is that in the second half of that vision, suddenly after the, after the Son of Man has come to the Ancient of Days and is given this kingdom, then suddenly the saints of the Most High are given a share in that same kingdom, but only as they end up passing through great affliction hmm. like the Son of Man. And so with the coming of the Messiah is a dramatic breakthrough in salvation history that goes largely unnoticed, much like the wallpaper in my house, you know. <laughs> and yet the saints of the Most High end up being drawn into this everlasting divine kingdom in a way that was unthinkable. It's almost as though the old covenant has been fulfilled in the new in a way that surpassed the highest hopes and wildest dreams of the holiest Jews. And that's exactly right. And so what we have come to take for granted was such an, an unthinkable breakthrough, only made possible through the suffering of the Son of Man and His vindication, mm. but now conferring upon us as saints who suffer a kingdom that we enter as we pass through that great crucible. And the Eucharist is what transformed Jesus' execution a sacrifice. It transforms our suffering into a holy sacrifice and in the process makes us saints. And I, I think, you know, as we do a flyover of biblical theology of sanctity, you know, the discovery that in the Old Testament, you know, humans and angels didn't worship together. The angels' pure worship was up there. The Levites were slaughtering animals down here. Right. Only after the resurrection does the apocalypse describe angels and saints now singing the great Amen, the holy, holy, holy. Now, not only are angels and saints united in heaven, but earth and heaven are united in the Eucharistic liturgy. I, if, if I could put it in a kind of neat uh, formulaic way uh, that may simplify uh, this analogy. Yeah, please do. Uh, the, the transition, the movement is from shadow to substance, That's from right. figure to fulfillment. And the crystallizing moment is Christ. Uh, Jacques Maritain has a great line about uh, the purpose, the function of Adam. His mission is to interpret and explain the dreams of Eve. And there's a sense in which Jesus, the new Adam, explains everything that happened to Eve, uh, this figure of Old Testament longing, expectation. He unpacks the meaning of the Old Testament. He is the exegete. Uh, he is the exegesis. And for example, in Exodus 3, you have that shattering theophany in which God reveals himself. I am who am. But that's pretty off-putting. He is holy. I mean, we don't need to be told he's holy. It's pretty evident. He is absolutely other. This terrifying presence uh, which, you know, from which Moses shrinks. It gives him a sunburn. That's right. <laughs> it, it doesn't need to be pointed out, but Jesus, who comes later, the new Moses, makes everything pretty plain. And that's yeah. right to the point. No one or almost no one is called a saint in the Old Testament apart from the Messiah 
who makes people saints. Yeah. Right. You see? So yeah, that's the key, and that's really what the burning bush was all about. Yeah, yeah. You know, take off your sandals for the ground you stand on is holy. The ground was holy, the bush was holy, but Moses wasn't, right. not yet. Right. You know, and yet, of course, you know, God buries Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, just like Enoch was taken up. And so, you know, the Jewish prophetic tradition has this insight into how it will be for Enoch and Moses and Elijah. They're going to be forerunners in a certain sense because they got as close as you could in the Old Testament yeah, to yeah, what yeah. we call sainthood. So, so if we f go from the old to the new, yeah. how, so we, we don't see the saints uh, really in the, in the old. We see a glimpse of what might be with the redemption of the Son of Man. Then what do we see in the New Testament? Well, I mean, even the demons recognize that something changed. You know, mm. you, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Shush. You know? <laughs> and, and, and the fact is, you know, you've got to be holy as God is holy. That's in Leviticus. But what Luke does with this is to show us that what Jesus announces is that you've got to be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Mm. And so it's the mercy of God that enables sinners to become saints. But in the process, it's the mercy of God that makes us holy. Not just getting mercy, but giving mercy. Mm. Not just having friends in high places, but making friends in really low places. Mm. Humbling ourselves like Jesus did and recognizing that He stooped down infinitely low. When we stoop down to someone who's broken, we're stooping down just that infinitesimal fraction a little lower than we already are ourselves. Well, wait, let's go back just for a second to the Old Testament because I think there's a, a potential misunderstanding. Um, it's not that the patriarchs and prophets weren't, weren't holy. They may not have been called holy, but Abraham was justified. They were, they were holy in a sense. Objectively. Right? Yes. That's right. But they functioned in a, in a, in a foreshadowing fashion. Right. And they, even their holiness was derivative from the Messiah that's who was to come, who was right. to come. And right. that's why so just Abraham... Just to clarify that, yes, because I think point. it was said they, they that they were holy. They were holy. They adumbrate okay. from as shadow were. to the arrival of yeah. another. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. right. It's important to recognize, though, that Abraham's bosom is not heaven. Yeah. And so when Lazarus is there in Abraham's bosom, and, you know, and, he's, and there's that exchange in Luke's Gospel with that rich man, you know, it's clear that they're not home yet. Right. And so they're holy in a provisional sense. That's right. But not until Christ's death and resurrection does he leave captivity. And because they're in that provisional state after death, before entering the gates of the kingdom of heaven, they can't function yeah, as right. saints after Christ's yeah, that, that's a good mystery. Yeah. It, it's a kind of vestibule. It awaits the bursting of Christ through the gate and the grave of death. And as they're there, they, can't, they don't intercede and function in the same way as right. they do right. after Christ no. opens those gates. It, it, and know, the scriptural text reflects that. Two things. One, you know, in the Old Testament, you kind of assume that there was martyrdom, but there really wasn't. I mean, Abel is the victim of fratricidal murder, you know. But martyrdom begins around the time of Daniel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when Daniel's in the lion's mm -hmm. den. You know, in, in, the, in the final stage of the Old Testament, God was now saying, look, instead of sacrificing animals in the temple, I'm going to ask you to say yes to the consent of self-offering. You know, so the final chapter of the Old Testament brings us to the very threshold of the new, but apart from Jesus suffering death and resurrection, you know, everything is still preliminary. It's preparatory. Mm. It, it's well, foreshadowing. It's, well, the second thing is this, that, that in Paul's writings, he recognizes that this call to holiness is so real now because we possess the Holy Spirit who makes us saints in a way that they didn't 
you know, in the old. He says, to the saints of the church of God in Corinth. And he addresses so many of his letters, not just that you're called to be saints, but that in a certain unique way compared to the Old Testament, you are. Now become what you are. In in the Old Testament, holiness is a kind of principle. You have to perfectly adhere to God's will, follow the law, the Torah. In the New Testament, holiness becomes a person, concretely incarnate in this person who bears the unique name, Jesus the Christ. He is holiness itself. Yeah, you were gonna, so I was gonna ask you, help me understand um, the idea that they're not martyrs. in the light of Paul in Hebrews 11, 12. Yeah, they, they are martyrs. Calling them so witnesses in a certain respect. So right. tell me. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the point is that everybody suffered to become mm-hmm. righteous in the Old Testament. Right. But the idea that they actually were dying, you know, when you go back to the time of Moses and Joshua, you were killing Canaanites to enter into the inheritance. But, you know, even in David and Solomon's time, you don't, it isn't really until about the, pot, the time of Isaiah, who in the, right, in the tradition yeah. is sawn in half, right. you know, because his testimony yeah. is so despised. Right. From that point on, the wellsprings open where God's people are called upon to suffer, most especially the prophets. You know, and so often Jesus' prophecy is concerning his own suffering yeah. because that's what and, the prophet is. And, and Michael, don't we oftentimes speak of a kind of prevenient grace yeah. that is visited upon somebody like Abraham who's justified by a faith he doesn't really have yet yeah. because it can only come from Christ. Yes. It's anticipatory. Yeah, right. but the very fact that he's willing to sacrifice right. Isaac, it would be easier just to sacrifice myself. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we talk about the saints and we talk about the communion of the saints. Yeah. And where do angels fit into this idea of communion of saints? How does that all play? Are they part of this? Yeah, I mean, in the natural order, they're entirely different creatures, you know, than we are. They don't have any kinship solidarity with us. But at the same time, because they share the grace of divine sonship, as we share the grace of Christ's divine sonship, we have become brothers in the supernatural family of God. Naturally, they're much higher than we are. All nine choirs, even the lowest of them. But supernaturally, they come to share a grace that not only elevates us to their level, Mm. but in a certain sense, elevates one of ours, namely the Blessed Virgin Mary, to be the queen of the angels. Mm. God did the greatest work with the least of them. And, Mm. you know, it's precisely because of her humility that called down such inestimable graces that she is now the fullness of grace, but also glory, even for the angels. God has a habit of doing that. St. Michael is an example. I I love that. An angel from one of the lowest, if not the lowest choir, the nine choirs of angels is the one who's brought to run the heavenly host by the, in right. the order of and grace. Luc- and Lucifer yeah. was among the, the yeah, highest, highest, highest of the and, and he's the one deployed by God to somehow dispatch uh, the fallen angels to make the sure same. that they end up in hell. Revelation 12. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, repeats yeah. in our own Revelation lives. 12. I mean, that's where one third <laughs> yeah. of the stars fall, but even more specifically, that's where the woman is attacked by the ancient serpent. But St. Michael, Michael. Yeah. you know, it's not beneath my dignity to rescue the queen, my future queen mother. That's right. You know? that's right. I mean, quite apart from trying to commune with the angels, just knowing about them is sort of liberating. I, I tell my students yeah. when we take an inventory of how many are in the class, I say, look, you need to double the number because you're not the only people here. Angels That's right. have personalities. They think and they love. Well, let's somehow expand the numbers of people. That, I think, helps to break that solipsistic stranglehold that the self-fixated have. Yeah, and I mean, the, the guardian angel that is entrusted to us 
is the best, best friend we could ever find. I mean, more intelligent than a room full of scholars and Einstein, <laughs> more powerful than all of the armies, and yet he was created for one purpose, and that is That's to right. make us holy. And so, I mean, the, the idea of becoming friends with your guardian angel, but even more, I pray to the guardian angels of my family members, right. and especially my students, most particularly my problem students. <laughs> well, it's great to have a, a three-on-one, as my spiritual director <laughs> yeah, says. Get right. to pray well, to their know, guardian angel. St. John the 23rd uh, would oftentimes send his angel to the guardian angel of some troublesome, some pesky fellow that he was going to spend time with and, and sort of make it easier uh, to move this man in a direction that, that God would approve. No, that's and great. That, that's wonderful. That's real. Yeah, that's real. Uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. My favorite saint is Saint Monica. She's the mother of Saint Augustine, and she devoted her whole life to praying for her son to come closer to Jesus. And I think, and I just want to model myself after her, and just being an intercessor for others, so that I can bring them closer to Christ. My favorite saint is Blessed Pier Giorgio. He was born in 1901 in Turin, Italy, and he died at the age of 24. I really like him because he was all about giving of himself to those around him and just a very manly virtue. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from our campus here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, our students are running the, the camera and the equipment. Our panelists are faculty uh, here at the university. Uh, we've been talking about Angels and Saints uh, with Dr. Scott Hahn, a great book. Um, Scott, when we talk about the saints, when the Catholic Church identifies and puts their mark on someone and says, this, this individual was a saint, what does that really mean? Well, we need to trace it back to its origin, and that is the power and authority that Jesus conferred upon Peter and the apostles, and then the paraclete empowers their successors to continue this. In Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, you know, that's a significant power. Mm. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. You know, you don't want the earthly tail to wag the heavenly dog, but there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is empowering the popes as successors to Peter to really bind and loose as God, wi mm. as God wills. That isn't just in terms of binding doctrine. You know, that's not just in terms of declaring something to be righteous or sinful. It's also loosing those and declaring that God has brought into glory those that we call saints. And in Matthew 18, the power to bind and loose is shared with the college of the apostles there and likewise in subsequent centuries with all of their successors. And so this is something that has become more formalized in canon law and in church procedure, but from the very beginning people recognized this. The faithful recognized that, that certain people among them were holy in a peculiar right. way and when they died they didn't become, they became more powerful you okay. know, and more present to us. 
And so what we recognize now, of course, is this process where you know, the successors of the apostles that we call bishops exercise Episcopal jurisdiction by declaring somebody from their own area to be a servant of God, okay. like Fulton Sheen, for example, right. you know, who was the Bishop of Rochester, but he came from Peoria, and he's now declared a servant of God. And so in the process of the investigation, you look for heroic virtue, and you also look for a miracle. Mm. Because once that happens, and he's declared venerable, because the Vatican Congregation for the Cause of the Saints approves this sort of thing after the initial investigation by the local bishop. And so he is venerable, but you move from venerable to beatification to blessed mm. when that first miracle occurs, you know, that shows that there was a particular intention to intercede for this man to intercede. And then, of course, you have the beatification and you have the blessed. And then you have uh, a, another stage that we recognize as canonization, where a second post-mortem miracle occurs in addition to the one that got him beatified. And I mean, this is the standard operating procedure. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, it isn't as though the church is bound to this because, you know, uh, the exceptions prove the rules, as it were, with John the 23rd and others too. But I, I think it shows us that we are really earnest and serious about recognizing that there are people who are in heaven who are also helping us on earth, and, and we tap into them, and we celebrate them, and we have feast days for them, we have churches named after them. But I also wanted to add, we also have the Feast of All Saints, mm. because the vast majority of saints you know, never got the MVP award, right, you know, never yeah, yeah. got the all-star made it to the all-star team, and yet they won many games for right. us without right. even noticing, perhaps. And, and this is something that we also recognize because Mother Teresa well knew that there were many anonymous missionaries of charity who may have been holier than her. Yeah. And that's true for the Jesuits and St. Ignatius and other places yeah. too. You make a good point. You say they help us. They're not just like heroes of all that we can read about and serve as models from a distance, so to speak. Right. They do function like that, but they're in our lives. They're present with us, especially in the liturgy, but in our daily lives, actually present intervening, helping, assisting, not just from a distance. We need this and we And that's a huge it. difference. It's huge. I mean, it's completely unique. When you look at the comic books and all of the movies about all the superheroes, it's filling a vacuum right. That's right. because we know we've got God, that's right. but we're part of something that includes all of these endowed intermediaries. And if we don't have angels and saints, we're going to end up with Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, who is our human real? longing is for that. <laughs> right. And, and there's too many people awesome. who think God just... <laughs> <laughs> what? He is, but he's unreal. He's what? not a saint. <laughs> I think a, a distinction uh, is, is, uh, is useful here. We're not saved by their example any more than we're saved by the example of Christ. Yeah. I mean, that was the point that Augustine made in his great controversy with the Pelagians. The secret poison of their heresy was the notion that somehow the example of Jesus is what saves us. No, it's his person. And the saints cleave to his person so that the person of Christ is somehow enriched and extended by their membership in his body. Right. And that's what helps us, that great cloud of witnesses that crowd about us and impinge upon uh, our path at every turn in the wood. We're surrounded by these people, and that, that's a source of power. There's something efficacious yeah. about having their company. That is so yeah. critical. I mean, otherwise we really lapse into a moralism yeah. that becomes self-congratulatory, right. which is doubly dangerous. You know, the fact is it's participation, it's not just imitation. You know, the family mm. is in some ways the primordial analogy because, you know, the father raises the siblings and the older ones help the younger ones, at least they should be. 
you know, helping. The other analogy is the body, where all of the members participate in the head and the head unites. And in this case, Christ is the head of the church and what unites us is the spirit of divine charity, this fiery love that binds us together so that, that God's family ends up becoming one body more than my body will ever be united yeah. with its head. You know? yeah. And so it isn't just two quaint metaphors. There really are right. two mysteries that converge and we need to meditate upon them so that when the day, when the hour comes where we're thrust into something where God knows we're in over our heads, you know, that's where these friendships really pay off. And not just with, a, you know, with, the, you know, with the cavalry coming in and, you know, right. and rescuing us, but really a bond of love that is deepened because the saints can confer upon us what they now perfect. So with, with these personal witnesses, with these personal intercessors, these, these champions at our side, um, you know, to make it real, what, what are some of the saints? I mean, because there are so many, you know, and in your book you go through a number of them. Let's talk about some of the saints. Well, you know, in the beginning of the list of 12, it started off with 40, then I kept whittling it down. Uh, in, in, in the list of 12, the first one is surprisingly Holy Moses because it's a reminder that the people in the old who were waiting for the Messiah have now been taken up into his mystical body. Mm. Um, and, and then the second one is Saint Michael the Archangel because of what he does for Our Lady in the, in the visions of John in the Apocalypse chapter 12. But, but even more as a reminder that they now have this fraternal bond with mm. us like our brothers and sisters never did. Mm. And that this isn't, again, just sort of you know, a souped up spiritual pious fiction. This is hard cold metaphysical fact. You know, but I, I must say St. Paul is sort of like the one who is the nearest and the dearest, you know, perhaps because of the, the zeal that he had as a persecutor that is harnessed and redirected as a, a converted man. I, I used to not just be non-Catholic, I was a very anti-Catholic Christian and evangelical and I saw statues and images, I wanted to bust them, I felt guilty because I was such a coward, you know. Yeah. Now, of course, I realize that you walk into a home and you see pictures of your family members, and so we walk into the church, and that's what the images and statues are all about. But St. Paul was the one who really transformed me. I blame becoming Catholic on him. <laughs> and, you know, there, I have others, too. St. Irenaeus is the one who showed me the continuity, not only the old to the new, but from the scriptures to the living tradition. You know, and, and he just helped me to read the Bible from the heart of the church. And I know we all have favorite saints. In fact, I've found some more since I finished this book. You know, Padre Pio in particular is the one who's really become a, a go-to best buddy for me. I was there, you know, in San Giovanni Rotondo about an hour before that opened, you know, where you see his body and I just, oh. Saints are amazing. Well, let's talk for a moment. How do you cultivate a relationship? You, you spoke as if you, you have a relationship uh, with these, these holy men. Uh, well, I think you respond to a relationship that they've initiated. Mm. At least that's been my experience. I, I read St. Paul, but he was reading me. You know? mm. I thought I understood him, but he understood me and my needs much better. And that's true for all of the evangelists. It's true for all 12 of the apostles. You know, they're not just up in heaven. In Revelation 21, those foundation stones aren't inert masses of rock. They are the 12 apostles, again, who are more alive than we are and probably more active than they were when they were here. Mm. You know, that's the kind of thing we've got to just, I mean, we've got to allow ourselves to be amazed by the things that almost bore us sometimes. To, hmm. to enter into uh, interaction with the saints and intimacy with them more consciously, one thing that's helpful is to realize that it's not just a concatenation or aggregation of a crowd of folks, okay? It is a cloud of witnesses, but it's hierarchically ordered. 
and they all have a role. The church reflects this in talking about different types of saints, uh, martyrs, virgins, doctors, etc., cetera, uh, confessors. But Our Lady is, it does reign with Our Lord. Right. She reigns as a queen. Right. So the saints are, are under orders and there's a really lovely and beautiful, we just get glimpses of it, uh, design that God established. So the graces flow from Christ and all through Mary. She's the mediatrix of all graces. So, so her role as a saint is, is obviously, it's always so obvious we, we wouldn't say it, but we need to say it. Yeah, she, sure. she, she is the most superlative saint mm -hmm. uh, for, from whom all other right. saints take their marching orders, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This heavenly well, realm, uh, you know, this, this place of paradise, we, we can think of it as a kind of sky. It's studded with stars, mm. it, it, not solitaries, but, but, but company, what Balthazar calls the Christological constellation. Everybody is sort of uh, in relation to this centerpiece, the still point of the turning world, the summit of the stairs, the mm. triune God, and we all surround uh, this, uh, this still point. I, I was struck by the juxtaposition uh, in, in, in your uh, uh, characterizing saints. Uh, you had Paul, and then you mentioned Irenaeus. And, and that is very instructive because Irenaeus is regarded as the father of Western theology who takes this notion, which we find in Paul in Ephesians, I think it's 1.10, about the plan, the design Yoik. from all eternity, mm -hmm. and this, this doctrine of recapitulation yeah. and, and, and carries it and in some sense deepens it. And it's all rooted in Paul. It's rooted in Christ, that somehow in Jesus, everything is rehearsed and reiterated, repeated, renewed, repristinated. And I think that's what the saints do. They show us Jesus in a distinctive way. They have a certain style of being that's different. The diversity among the saints is really the most remarkable thing about them. They're not the Rockettes. They're okay. all different. There, there's this wonderful, endearing eccentricity about them. Yeah, I, I, I've been <laughs> teaching Irenaeus lately, and I'm really grateful for the reminder because of the decisive impact reading him had on me, precisely because he takes the economy of Ephesians 1.9 and the recapitulation, the anakephaliosis of Paul in Ephesians 1.10, and then just opens up right. all of Scripture. It's more than a book. It really shows us history, but it's more than speculation. It was what he was doing as a pastor, as a bishop, and why he became a martyr with, with that joy that still you know, infuses us with grace. You know, you were pointing out the stars and that Baldazar quote. You know, this shows us the answer to the question, is there life on other planets? There are lives behind every planet and every star. I mean, science has raised the wrong question. Christianity answered this a long time ago. The whole universe is charged with cosmic personalism. Mm. I mean, every square inch, every speck of dust, you know, angels and saints now occupy it all in a vastness that goes beyond the tallest giant on the planet. Yeah. And I, you know, again, this is spicy, hot religious rhetoric. The heck it is. It falls <laughs> short of the reality, right. way yeah. short. Yeah. And wait until we see, you know, it's like we're almost, you know, struggling in utero to figure out what life on the right. outside right. is like. Yeah. yeah, we have I mean, no clue. In, in, in Hopkins, you have a kind of lyric outburst of exactly what you're saying in <laughs> prose. The world is charged with the grandeur of God, and it will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Yeah. And, and, and the reason everything is held together is because at the end of the day, over the bent world, there is this warm breast 
of divine love. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost is hovering over everything, and the saints are somehow plugged in to this source of celestial power and energy, and it radiates out into the four winds. And that plugs into what Mike said earlier about the hierarchy, which is more than a pecking order. Yeah. Hierarchia is a sacred order. It's a holy order. You know, and so the whole thing is just endowed with love. And most especially our Blessed Mother, the Queen of Angels and Saints. I mean, I must say, that is the heart of it all. We have a mother. Amen, amen. Stay with us for our final segment on Franciscan University Presents. I'll pray to St. Faustina um, for all the souls who are suffering in purgatory and just for our daily sufferings, just offering that up. She talked a lot about uniting that to the suffering of the Lord on the cross, and so I'll unite it to his, to his sufferings as well. Uh, St. Monica, I pray to her a lot um, for the intercession of my family because I go to the Catholic Church of St. Monica back home, and I've gone there for most of my life. And it, she's really an important person in helping change her family, and I want to help you know, strengthen my family as well. Uh, and also in my life, she's just a very big model of patience and, and perseverance too. That's something I wanna um, try to model as well. Study online, on campus, or both in graduate programs for working adults at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Advance your career with the ethical approach to management you'll find in our MBA. Bring online learning to life through our Masters in Education. Prepare for advanced practice nursing with our Masters in Nursing. Check franciscan.edu or call 800-783-6220. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents in our final segment. We've been talking about angels and saints. Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, uh, I mean, so many things uh, are teeming in my <laughs> in my head, but one idea in particular uh, I, I find uh, especially resonant, and, and that's the idea of companionship mm -hmm. that, that we're, we're meant to cultivate, a friendship mm -hmm. with the angels and the saints. I mean, they're meant to become our pals. We talk to them, mm -hmm. we, we, we draw uh, uh, strength and inspiration and comfort from them. They're terribly interested in us because their interest is harnessed to the infinite intimate interest of Christ in every human being. He, he, you know, he cares more than a fig uh, for, for these creatures that he fashioned. Uh, and and that's, that, I think, is, is something we have over against everybody else. We have an edge when it comes to the saints, the communion of saints. Probably the most consoling doctrine we've got in the whole arsenal of faith. This notion that we can really draw upon their companionship, their support. They care about us and, and, and that care, I, I think, we're, we're supposed to extend to others. Mm. Uh, there's a, there's a wonderful book uh, by Charles Williams. Uh, uh, it's called Descent into Hell. Uh, Williams was, was one of those uh, inklings uh, who inspired Lewis in, 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 in many uh, formative ways. Lewis said that when, when Williams died, nothing more convinced him of the presence of God than Williams going to meet him in the flesh. And, and T.S. Eliot said that there wasn't anybody who, who struck him as more at home in the company of a ghost than <laughs> Williams. Because for Williams, 
The movement from time to eternity, nature to grace, was sort of diaphanous. It was transparent. The frontiers, uh, you, you, didn't need a, 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 you didn't need a passport to get from uh, history to heaven. Uh, th this was all grace. And, and in this particular story, there's a character who is really frightened because every time she goes outside, she bumps into herself, a doppelganger. And, and she tells her friend, look, I'm frightened. And he says, look, the next time you're frightened, why don't you think to yourself, my friend is going to carry this burden. And, and then he invokes the Pauline injunction. If we are to carry one another's burdens, why can't we construe it quite literally? If you have a load and it's too heavy and I offer to carry it, then the weight of that load is diminished by what I'm willing to shoulder. And sure enough, the next time she confronts this doppelganger, she realizes he's carrying this burden for me. Mm. And she goes uh, light-footed mm. uh, into, uh, into, uh, into the world. And then she realizes that this doppelganger is really an ancestor of hers, a distant ancestor who is about to face martyrdom and doesn't have the kidney to summon to face the fire. And he's reaching out to her four centuries later. And she feels that impetus of grace and agrees to help carry this burden. Because in the Christian life, time and eternity are sort of coterminous. You know, God stands outside time, so he can apply the graces of our prayers to any moment he pleases. And so this martyr in the 16th century feels the grace that is somehow mobilized by his by his uh, distant cousin four centuries later, and it changes uh, the whole, it changes the whole landscape of, of his life. He faces that fire with a kind of courage. That's what the saints and the angels do for us. Ah, thank you. Mike? Well, in my vocation uh, as a married man um, and as a Christian, uh, Mary has, has been central for me. If no one is a saint apart from the Messiah, excellent part of that, uh, of the first segment here, we discussed that, uh, then, then all saints owe everything to Our Lady who gave us the Messiah with her, with her willingness. And in uniting her, her life of discipleship and motherhood to her son and offering him on the cross and uniting her sufferings with his, she has this role as universal mediatrix of grace. So Our Lady's been central to me in my return to the Catholic Church several decades ago in my marriage. John Paul II is very dear to our hearts, St. John Paul II, and his motto was totus tu is drawn from the Louis de Montfort's reflection on true devotion to Mary. And so we uh, have, as a family um, and as a married couple with our children and individually, uh, done the de Montfort consecration, total consecration to Jesus through Mary. Uh, we renew it on a regular basis. We have totus tuus engraved on our wedding rings. And uh, I cannot speak highly enough about Our Lady. Nothing that could be said could, could capture what she's done for us and how important she is to us. Uh, one little final comment I have is that uh, on our honeymoon, instead of uh, going to, to the Bahamas or somewhere, though that would have been awesome, no, no doubt. <laughs> We really, what we really wanted to do, we, we, it really came to us in prayer, was go on a pilgrimage uh, and visit every shrine in the United States, contiguous United States, where a canonized saint lived and is buried. So we went from coast to coast, from New York, St. Um, Francis Xavier Cabrini, 
Philadelphia, St. John Neumann, all the way to the West Coast, Blessed Unipero Serra, and everywhere in between. And we, I obtained from the library at Catholic U when I was doing my doctoral work there a series of writings of saints, of the saints whom we, right. whose shrines we were visiting, right. their letters, uh, biographies, etc., cetera, uh, things that they themselves had written. And there's really, I found, no substitute for, for being formed in Christ by those who were most intimately united to him. So their example, their writings, and then their personal presence with us is really ineffable, wow. a precious gift. And really, all of it is thanks to Our Lady's yes. So, so, uh, so I'm very grateful for, and I'm very grateful for your book, Scott. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's not just informative, but it's transformative and devotional in the best sense of the word. So mm, thank thanks you, for you. having me. Thank, thank you, you, Regis. Yeah. Scott. I would say the heart of it is to discover who we are under the fatherhood of God and the motherhood of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I concur wholeheartedly, total consecration. Also the rosary every day and experiencing the graces that come to us when she really makes us her child. Mm. I would also say, you know, go to the book and, you know, St. Maximilian Kolbe, another one of my all-time favorites, you know, St. Therese of Lisieux as well. Uh, but cultivate your own list, but more than a list, cultivate that conversation, that companionship. That's the heart and the soul of what it means to be a Catholic, a child of God in this worldwide family of God. We're one holy Catholic and apostolic, but especially one in love in heaven, holy where they are perfected. Catholic, which is universal, don't forget that part of the universe mm. and the apostles. It's not just the successors we call bishops. The apostles themselves are up there. Mm. And this is who we are as church. Mm. Amen. Scott, thank you for writing this book and being on the program today. Uh, if you've enjoyed uh, this program, we have a free handout for you at faithandreason.com. Uh, it's from Scott's book. Uh, kind of the introduction gives you a great taste and a good overview um, of uh, saints and angels. You can call and ask for it or find it at faithandreason.com. Uh, when I think about saints and angels, the first thing that comes to mind is, is it, it, we need to be reminded that we are in a spiritual battle, uh, that there's much more, as we've shared, much more than what we see uh, here on the, in the physical realities of this space. So, so cultivate those relationships and, and that they are personal friends and, and guardians that, that are with us on this journey and they want us to get to heaven. So let's, let's call and invoke them. Um, I want to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University's mission, which is, which is forming the students who are going out to transform the world. Maybe you want to come and, and take classes here or online uh, at the university. Uh, maybe you want to join us at some of our summer conferences or one of our pilgrimage to holy shrines and, and so many saints that we have throughout this world. Or maybe it's visiting us on faithandreason.com where we have some great videos, downloads, uh, topics that will really equip you to go out and evangelize uh, this world. But until next time, at the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888 333-0381, that's 888-333-0381, or call 740-283-6357.